Let's go back into the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in a couple of different places in the book of Luke, and I'm going to give you some verses to look at later because there's no way we'll have time to get all of these that I've written down here tonight. But tonight, I want to finish a thought that I just briefly, in maybe a half a paragraph, gave this morning from the sermon. And I want us to explore the thought, I want us to explore what the Bible has to say about the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking back again tonight in the New Testament and focusing just on Luke, there are different places obviously in the Gospels that you can go to as it pertains to Jesus and His prayer life. But prayer and the prayer of Christ is really a theme of the book of Luke. Our good friend, the physician, Dr. Luke, he records much of Christ's prayer life. And it's obvious in the way that he writes and in the tone that he writes that Jesus' prayer life had a real impact on Luke. Uh, We're about to read a verse here in a moment and it will give you even more insight into that. Um, But let's set this up. Let's rightly divide the word and let's embrace something about our Lord and Savior as we dive into this tonight. It is vital, it is absolutely important that Christians understand that Jesus in His earthly ministry here on earth, while He was here, was all God and all man. How many have heard that saying, that phrase from the pulpit before, all God and all man? It's the truth. It's a wonderful truth. There's so much to this truth. But sometimes we lose sight of just what the humanity of Christ is. And most of the time, and I think rightly so, when we think of Jesus, we think of the deity. We think of that element of Christ, His perfect, righteous deity. His holiness, His power, His capability, His dying on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension, and praise God soon, maybe even tonight before I'm done, it would please me greatly if He would come again. We think of that element of Christ. But if we lose sight of the human side of Jesus Christ, we can lose our appreciation for what Jesus accomplished as a man on this earth. Now, before we go any further, let's remind ourselves, let's hold fast to the truth that Jesus in His humanity did the one thing that no other human being could do and remained perfect. There was never one infraction to be held against the Son of God. There was no chink in His armor. There was no soft spot. There was no sin. In His humanity, He remained perfect perfectly sinless. He was a flawless man, the only man to ever do it. But if we lose that fact that Jesus was all God and all man, we really can lose appreciation for what He accomplished for us. Now, the fullness of God, the full power of God rested upon Jesus even in His earthly ministry. He had capability, He had access, He had knowledge... He had things that no other man on earth had ever had because there had never been born the Son of God. 
all God and all man, both characteristics, both capacities fully resting upon him, but remaining perfect as a human being. So the fullness of God rested upon him, but so did all of the portions or all the parts of human temptation. All of the temptation you have ever felt in your life, no matter what that temptation is, Jesus experienced that temptation. And I want you to process this thought. Imagine being tempted, but with the power and the capability to do whatever you want. Jesus is all God. Jesus is all man. But no man has ever faced a temptation to the level that Jesus Christ, the man, ever felt. I recently had the opportunity to meet and to talk with Dansby Swanson. He's the shortstop for the, Dan, the, the, the uh, Atlanta Braves. A, a great shortstop. I hope we keep him and don't lose him in free agency. All those that know what I'm talking about say amen. Now, this young man has made some bold statements, some big proclamations about his faith publicly. He's not ashamed of it. He says it. Is he a perfect man? No. And, and I think sometimes these folks that have big publicity, uh, everybody knows who they are, and they come out and they say, I'm a Christian. Yes, many of them, uh, they fail, they fall, and they do it publicly. And the media is no... Uh, there is no restraint upon them. They see one infraction, one mistake, and now it's not just this sports star has made a mistake. It's this sports star or maybe even this actor who claims Christ to be Lord and Savior of their life has made a massive blunder. And, and I got to thinking, I, I talked to Dansby for just a, a few minutes and in conversation, I, I saw a weight upon his face. Just the weight of everything that was happening. I don't know if he was tired. I don't know what he was struggling with. If he's, if he's a believer, he's dealing with spiritual warfare just like you are and I am. But I told Miranda later, I said, you know, I've never felt the temptation of what a potential $300 million baseball contract is. I've never been tempted to that level. I've never had access to that kind of money. I have no idea what it is to be tempted to that level. I've never been tempted to the level that Elvis Presley was tempted. I have no idea what it is to be under that much pressure and that much fame. Uh, Jesus was the greatest example to mankind to ever walk the face of the earth. Yet, no one on earth had ever lived the way he did. With the amount of temptation towards him. And the pressure of that temptation, no man has ever known that type of pressure before. Yet, he remained sinless and perfect. If he had not remained sinless and perfect, he would have not been the Messiah. Your Jesus went to the desert. We read it this morning as he returns, as the Bible said, in power out of Luke chapter 4. He returns in power from being tempted 40 days in the desert Satan himself is tempting Christ, but you cannot tempt God. You can't tempt my God. You cannot try to kill my God. You, Satan doesn't have, have that kind of power. God cannot be tempted. He's God. There's nothing within him that would cause temptation. But the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus, the man was tempted for 40 days. He was hungry 
just like you're hungry. He was tired, just like you're tired. He was thirsty, just like you're thirsty. He had human emotion, just like you have human emotion, yet he did it all and remained perfectly sinless. What a Savior is he? Gives us such appreciation for who our Christ is, what he accomplished even in his humanity. What a slap across the face for Satan that that rascal would take our Lord and Savior to the desert and tempt him. And if you'll notice how Jesus is victorious over Satan in that interchange, in that exchange, if you will, between Satan and Christ, the only way he was able to stay perfect, to stay sinless, was by quoting Scripture. He quoted the Word. The Word quoted the Word to Satan. And he left that situation just as clean and perfect as he went in to that situation. And then he comes out of that situation, and the Bible says, in power. How many people know that when Satan comes and he tempts you, and you're able to overcome the temptation because of the power that lives on the inside of you that's greater than the one that's in the world, that you leave that moment with great victory and with great power? When Satan comes, when the temptation comes, when the opportunity to sin, when the opportunity for the degradation of your character happens and you plead the blood of Christ and you overcome it because of who's inside of you, you leave that situation wiser than you were before and you leave it in great power. That's what happens to Jesus. The humanity of our Christ, the humanity of our Lord. It almost sounds out of the way if we talk about the prayer life of the Son of God. Think of that now. Why would the Son of God, who is just as much a part of the Godhead, just as much God, why would then He have a prayer life? So what we're saying then is God prayed to God. How does that make sense? How do we equate that? That's why we have to divide perfectly the deity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as all God and the humanity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as all man. And the humanity of Jesus prayed desperately for the will of the Father. Luke is the best at giving us a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus and I think for us to best understand the humanity of our Lord and Savior is to look at what He prayed for. What would the Son of God be forced to ask for? What would the Son of God come to a place and say, Father, I need you. I think there in those moments... Those prayers that Jesus prayed that Luke did a wonderful job through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost captured for us. Now, in Luke, the best of my ability, you may find many more, you may find many less. To the best of my ability, I can find and confirm 12 different prayers that Jesus prayed in the book of Luke. 12 different prayers, 12 different instances, 12 different circumstances where Jesus was recorded to pray. Sometimes we don't have the entire prayer. Sometimes all it says, and Jesus prayed. But Luke made a really, really concerted effort to record when Jesus Christ prayed. And we have access to that. I'm going to give you just the chapter and the verse of these. Some of these I'll give you the theme 
but I want to give you all 12. And my challenge to you this week is to go back in your personal devotion and your personal prayer life. And I want you to read these 12. I want you to read around them. I want you to get in context and study for yourself what you find as you study the Word of God as it pertains to the prayer life of our Lord and Savior. The first one, and I'm going to give you the context on this one because we're going to talk about this one. The first is Jesus' prayer at baptism. That's 321, chapter 321. All of these are in the book of Luke. The second you'll look at is 516. 516, chapter 5, verse 16. The third I want you to look at is chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. Chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. The fourth, this is the feeding of the 5,000, the prayer that he prayed there, is in 916. The next, and we'll talk about this one, is in 928 and 29. Luke 9, 28 and 29. The sixth is 1021. 1021. For all of my police officers in here, give me a phone call. The Lord's Prayer is found in 11, 2 through 4, 22, 17 through 19 is the Lord's Supper, 22, 31 and 32, 22, 39 and 46, 23, verse 46, and 24, 30. Those were all the instances we could find and study this week of Jesus praying in the book of Luke. Now, let's back up to this first one I gave you. We'll do this one together and one other one I want us to look at tonight. Luke 3.21, and this is what it says. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying. There's the key. Underline that, highlight that. Also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. Now look what happens after the heavens open. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Now, you can read this instance in the other Gospels. But Luke is the only gospel that mentions that Jesus was praying. You see, Luke was really, really concerned when Jesus prayed. This is the only gospel that gives us the fact that Jesus was praying. So underline that in 321, and praying. He was praying. And in that prayer, something happens. God the Father responds to his prayer. The Holy Ghost of God responds to his prayer. It was not John the Baptist. It was not the water. It was the fact that the Son was communicating with the Father and the Holy Ghost. And what you have here in this moment is the Trinitarian doctrines of the faith confirmed. That God is one God in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. But they did not come until the Son began to pray. Jesus had a prayer life, people. He had 
a prayer life. This is so important for us to understand in these days and in these hours. Parents, this is something you need to be teaching your children to guard themselves from. As a pastor, let me give you this warning. YouTube is full of religious programming. YouTube is full of good-looking guys sitting behind a mic that have a Bible in hand and multi-million dollar facilities that are able to produce high-impact content ready for your family to consume. But many of those people belong to false religion. They belong to pagan thoughts, pagan ideology, such as Mormonism. You say, well, I thought Mormons were Christians. They want you to believe that. You say, well, don't be mean. I'm telling you, guard your family against this false doctrine that they teach. The Jehovah's Witness will teach you that the Trinitarian doctrine of the Bible is incorrect. And they will preach some sort of monarchism that includes modalism. Modalism is fatal to our faith. It's false doctrine. Modalism teaches that God is not three distinct persons, rather that God is a single entity that manifests at different times and in different places in a different form. That's heresy. It's heresy. You say, well, what's the big deal? You start losing doctrine. You start losing and start chipping away at the Trinitarian doctrine that our Bible absolutely upholds. And you start to lose the deity and the humanity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's vital. If you do not know what it means to be a Trinitarian, I'm not talking about a universalist. I'm talking about to believe what the Bible teaches, that there is a Son, that there is a Father, and that there is a Holy Spirit. Three distinct characters, three distinct persons that operate at the same time with the same power and the same authority, then you need to find out what that means quickly and teach it to your family. Jesus had a prayer life. And I'm so thankful that in that prayer, he used that moment and Luke sitting there watching or listening to the story of what happened, he hears that Jesus prayed. And then the Father spoke, and then the Holy Ghost came at a dove, all three working at the same time. This one verse disproves modalism. It disproves the monarchical strategies of the Jehovah's Witness. This is obvious from just this one verse. Let's move on. That was a rabbit trail, by the way. I I felt like I should go there, though. Go to Luke 6, verse 12 and 13. These will be on your screen as well. The prayer life of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, that's what we're consuming tonight. Be thinking of that and praying this as we study and read this. Luke 6, 12 and 13. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to what? To pray. Here we are again. The prayer life of Jesus. And continued all night in prayer to who? To who? So Jesus, the Son of God, who is all God and all man, the humanity of our Lord and Savior. When you talk about the humanity of Christ, you cannot put humanity in the context of you and me. There are elements that we are able to attach ourselves to, but when you talk about the humanity of Christ, you are not lessening 
the person Jesus. You are simply boasting in the grace and the mercy and the power and the perfection of our holy Lord and Savior. That the man, Jesus, would have to commune with the Father in prayer, not just for five seconds, not just to put in a sliding order of what he wanted and when he wanted it. No, 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 no. It says he prayed all night. I can honestly say that I have never prayed without stopping all night long. I have prayed hours through the night. I've prayed for two and for three hours, but I have never prayed all night long, 12 hours at a time. The Bible says that Jesus continued. It says that he did not stop. He continuously prayed all night long. And if we're going by Jewish custom, from the time the sun went down, when dusk began to settle in, to the time the sun came up, Jesus prayed to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, who also he named apostles. This is what he was praying about. Jesus is on the mountain praying to God all night long. And they're having a dialogue, they're having a conversation about who the twelve are going to be. Can you imagine, when I get to heaven, this is one of the things I'm going to ask. Father, may we have the transcript of that night. Can I please just know what that conversation was all about? Can I tell you what I believe it was about? I think, I believe this, there is no Bible. This is just my personal little heart pouring out. I believe with all of my heart that the humanity of Christ, the emotional creature of the human being, but who had to rest in the power and the capability and the knowledge of all God, knew who God wanted the 12 to be and had no problem confirming 11, but when it came to the Iscariot named Judas, there was a war that raged maybe even in his own emotion. But Father, is this who we want? The Bible even gives us this. It says that, and Judas, the brother of James, this is verse 16. It says, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. We're not even back to Jerusalem, and already Judas has been labeled the traitor. And could it be that the humanity that we witness in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays, not my will, but thy will be done, could it be that the war, the fight, the battle, the struggle within the humanity of our Lord and Savior was over the access that he was given to the devil. My chief financial officer is going to witness miracles. He's going to learn to love me. I'm going to learn to love him. But he's going to keep his distance just enough so that when it's time to sell me out, one of my closest friends, my confidant, is going to sell me out. Father, is this your will? Lord, help me with this. Help me process this, Father. I surrender to your will. And he picked Judas to be one of the 12. Jesus had a prayer life. All God and all man praying for the agreement of the Godhead upon the selection of these 12 men. 
I can't imagine the power and the glory that was there in these moments. Can you imagine being a little goat farmer on the side of a mountain? It's nighttime and you're moving your herd to the other side of the mountain and in the morning when the sun comes up, you're going to go down that hill and take them to some fresh grass and some water that you know is on the other side of the hill. And as you're taking your herd, going by the moonlight, you hear a voice in the distance. And as you get closer, you hear the words, the beautiful words being prayed. And there you'd run into the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on the side of a mountain, praying in perfect communion with God the Father. Boy, I'd love to be able to go back in time, have a map, and know the day and the time I would set myself up for some experiences. Can't imagine the power and the glory that was there in that moment as they communed together. Luke 9, 28 through 31. Let me give you this. Jesus had a prayer life. And it came to pass about in eight days... After these sayings, he took Peter, James, and John. Hold on to that. If you've been listening to me preach for any time at all, you're already going, oh boy, here we go again, transfiguration of Jesus. Hold on to me. Let's go through this. He takes Peter, James, and John and went up into a mountain to do what? To pray. And as he what? And as he what? As he prayed, as Jesus prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered. It means he literally changed the way he looked. And his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Let's set the tone of this just a little bit. This word glistering, it literally means emitting light or to be the source of that light. And this is a violent light. This is a bright light. Uh, This is the only time, this is why we mention this, this is the only time The only instance in the entire New Testament that this word is used and it was used at the transfiguration of our Lord and Savior, emitting light as to indicate flashing light, brilliant light, to suggest something and the best way we could describe it as lightning, micro explosions of brightness. And Jesus took his three disciples, James, Peter, and John, and he prayed in so much glory and in so much power, so pleasing to God the Father, that there on top of that mountain came Moses and Elijah and God the Father and the Shekinah glory and the Son and three little Jew boys who were scared to death as they watched their teacher, their master, literally change right before them into his glorified person. It should have killed them instantly. That much power, that much glory, that much holiness on top of that mountain should have taken their lives. 
But there's something special about James and Peter and John. And there's something special about the fact that Luke records it the way he does. You see, James and Peter and John were the only three of the disciples who were able to go on the mountain. They were the only three disciples that saw the raising of Jairus' daughter. They were the only three in the garden when they witnessed the agony of Christ in Gethsemane. These three, James, Peter, and John, have seen more power, more glory, and have heard and seen and smelt and felt things that you and I will never see until we get to heaven. And it all happened when Jesus prayed. Jesus had a prayer life. I, I can never touch on what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. And if you don't know that story, go consume this. This is an incredible portion of your New Testament. This so confirms more of the deity of our Lord and Savior. Now, remember, the Bible gives us the names, James, Peter, and John. Well, this is the same Peter that you read this is the same author of 2nd and 1st Peter. Go to 2nd Peter 1. And Peter gives for you his eyewitness account of what he saw. Look at this. I love this. I love that 2nd Peter holds up what happens in Luke 9. Peter says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is in verse number 16. But were eyewitnesses to what? His majesty, his glory, his power. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard. Now, this proves that this is not talking about his baptism at the river but rather proves that he's talking about the transfiguration, not on Tabor. Don't believe that, that, that story spun by Catholicism. The transfiguration of Jesus happened on Mount Hermon at over 9,000 feet. Jesus there on that mountain, look what he says in verse 18. And this voice which came from heaven we heard where? When we were with him on the holy mount. He's saying that Jesus received honor and glory from the Father. Stay with me. All God and all man on the mountain praying, James, Peter, and John. But before he would receive honor and glory from the Father, something had to change. Something had to be different. Before this meeting with Moses and Elijah and God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost and James, Peter, and John happens, something had to happen. The transfiguration of Christ was to allow Christ in that moment, even though he had not yet been to the cross, 
an opportunity to be with his dad, to be with his father in his full glory, in full capacity as God standing on that mountain and allowed the eyewitness of three little Jews to see something that no man could ever explain or behold. And in that moment, before he gets to Jerusalem, God's going to honor his son. And what were they talking about? Well, Luke told us, it said, and behold, they talked with him, two men, Moses and Elijah. And what were they talking about? They were talking about his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. On that mountain, your Lord and Savior transfigured himself in power, in glory, in the presence of the Father, so that before he went to Jerusalem, before he went to the cross to become my sin, God the Father knew he was going to have to turn his back on his darling son. He said, son, before you go, I'm going to give you some honor and some glory for what you're going to accomplish on the cross and it happened when the son of God the man Jesus prayed on the mountain you're not going to go to Jerusalem until I've given you a down payment on what you will accomplish after resurrection what a God don't tell me Jesus is not the son of God he is holy 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 We saw it, Peter said. He even said, Lord, it's good for us to be up here. I don't want to leave. Let's build a tabernacle. Let's stay right here and let's be in all this glory and let's be in all this power and let's not leave the top of this mountain. God said, I'm going to honor my son. Moses is there representing every man who had ever died. Every man who had ever had to taste what death was. Elijah was there for the church, those that will never die, those that will be raptured up to be with the Father. And there on that mountain, God let three little Jew boys give you in your New Testament over 2,000 years later confirmation that he's coming for his bride. He wants to be with you. He wants to you to be there with him in that presence and in that glory. And it's the benefits package of your salvation. But before you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get some honor and some glory. Can you imagine what it is to be in that much glory with God the Father, knowing you've got to become every sin that the world would ever sin. That you would have to take the pain and the pressure, the agony of Gethsemane, and then the death, the burial, and praise God, the resurrection to come. But to be separated, to have to go back away from all of that glory and come off the mountain and what's waiting for them. You'll find it. Read this story. Look what was waiting for Jesus when he came off of this mountaintop revival. You'll find it. There's a pattern in the New Testament, and this is something for every Bible believer. You say, you get way too jacked up about that stuff. I love Jesus so much, I cannot believe he would even let me have the honor of reading the Bible. But if you'll follow the pattern, 
even in the life of Christ, the humanity of our Lord and Savior. He leaves that mountain and what's waiting on him? Spiritual warfare. There's an oppressed person. There's a demon. There's a vexed person. There's someone possessed, oppressed. Darkness always follows great victory. That's why Jesus, as a man, had to pray. Because he had to prepare for what was coming. Y'all sleep. Good, good. Dad's with me. Praise the Lord. I love Jesus. Peter said he received honor and glory. So many of these will bless you nearly to death. Because in these moments that Jesus prays, you, no matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, as a human being, a believer, take that with you. This is for the believer. A lost man can't get this. How sad that is. To have to live in this world and not have what we have. I'm not saying that from a point of pride. I'm testifying, thanking the Lord for what he's done for me. I could not imagine one day in that darkness and that wickedness without what I have access to. I don't know if I can make it. But if you'll read these instances of Jesus praying and embrace the humanity that's having to pray, to ask for discernment, to ask for wisdom, to ask for strength, it will give you an appreciation for Jesus like you've never had before. That this perfect man accomplished so much for you and for me. Now I got out all the good part. I love that story. I love the power that's there, the glory that's there. But I think we need to pay attention to the pattern of our Lord. A prayer life. If you'll follow Luke and you'll look at the life of Christ as he prays, you will find that before any big decision, before any major move, before anything that he would have known, think of this, he already knows it's coming. That's why I talked about what I did this morning. Jesus goes to Nazareth into that synagogue knowing full well how the people would respond. He goes into Jerusalem as they shouted Hosanna knowing that was not going to last. He knew in the Garden of Gethsemane that he would succumb, that he would pray, not my will, but thine be done. Imagine the pressure of that. Yet being a human being who hurts and who has emotion. If Jesus Christ, who remains sinless and perfect, had to pray, then what may I ask, dear Christians, Bible believers, some of you Bible scholars, what then should we do as Christians? We should pray. If Jesus had to pray to prepare the Son of God, if he had to pray to prepare for darkness and spiritual warfare, then what do you think Winston, who is not perfect, who is not the Son of God, needs to do? It's a very simple equation. I need, I must pray. There is a reason there is such a war, such a struggle, such a battle when it comes to a consistent walk in a prayer life. There's a reason that so many things will 
distract you from even what is a godly intended moment of I'm going to do this. And sometimes I think we become unrealistic in the expectations that we set for ourselves and what we're doing is actually setting ourselves up for failure. Well, I need to pray. All right, here we go. And it's like quitting cigarettes, cold turkey. Good luck. Doesn't work. This thing's got to be planned out. It's got to be methodical. You're changing a habit of the human being. It takes time. This is a process. And for some people, they seem so detached from the thought of having a prayer life. That's the one thing that keeps them from ever having a prayer life. Well, I've never had one. And it's going to cost me so much and it's going to be so difficult. It's just easier if I stay away from it. That's exactly what the devil wants you to buy. That lie. Let's begin this process. If you're here tonight, if you're part of this fellowship of faith and you don't have a prayer life. Let's start with baby steps. Let's remember, no matter where we are, whether we're at home with our family, where we're out to eat with our family, whether we're at lunch at work, no matter where we are, let's start with baby steps in communicating with God. One of the easiest things to do for us is to thank Him for our blessings. It's a great place to start. If you'll read these, the Lord's Prayer gives you a great template on how to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Start with thanking him for who he is and for what he is. Don't make it about you to start. Make it about him. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Pray that prayer. Understand the pattern that Jesus was laying for us. Thank him for everything that he's giving you, your family, your church, your salvation. But baby steps. As we grow in that, as we develop a prayer life, take on what's inside your church bulletin, your newsletter each week, your prayer list. Take those names before the Lord and pray for them. And then when God answers that prayer, you'll see your faith increase, your faith grow. God will give you greater faith to believe bigger things. You know why Christians can't pray for big things anymore? Because they don't pray for the little things anymore. I'm not going to pray for my son, my daughter to get saved. They're too far gone. They're in the world. Start small. And then God will give you the faith and the authority to pray those big things. Jesus had a prayer life. I need a prayer life. Our children, our church, our families desperately need to know how to pray. I was recently at... A friend's house. There was some families that I didn't know that were there. And I was asked to pray a prayer over the meal that we were all going to share. And I said, okay, let us pray. We bowed our heads and we prayed. One of the small children there looked at everyone around the room looked at her mom and her dad, and she said, what did we just do? What was that? How is that child going to prepare for what's waiting for her in the eighth grade? Jesus prepared to fight. 
to face the darkness, to cast out the wickedness, to even cast out the devils themselves. What then must we do? We must pray. We must pray. It's not easy. It oftentimes can be weighty. There is a physical element to a real dedicated prayer life. Doesn't mean you have to get in a particular posture and hurt your knee or your hip or your back. Some of the best praying I've ever done is in that chair right there, sitting up. God knows your heart. We must pray. And so tonight we're going to close our service. I want to open the altars. If you don't like coming forward, I'd invite you to use your chair. And I want us to pray to close. And I'm not going to pray from here. I'm going to turn my mic off. There'll be some music playing softly. I'm not going to lead you in prayer. I'm not going to give you something to pray for. I want someone in this room to come and pray. And I want you to pray this prayer. An old preacher man taught me this, and it so helped me. And as an example, I'll show you this prayer. Lord, I'm coming before you now. And God, I don't know what I need to pray for. I don't know exactly what I need to pinpoint on. I don't know what I need to focus on. But Lord, would you show me what I need to pray for? And this is biblical. And Jesus, would you pray for me now? Jesus, you're praying to ask Jesus to pray for you? Oh, yes. See, if you read the Bible, it teaches us that we have a great high priest, a great advocate who sits at the right hand of the Father, who will lean down and whisper in his ear the prayers of his children. The nature of God the Father is not to ignore the Son, but rather to hear Him and in His will answer accordingly. And some of you simply just have not prayed before or you don't know how. Maybe the last time you prayed was the night you got saved. Well, tonight we're going to get the cobwebs out and we're going to come pray. And if you don't know what to pray for or how to pray, you just ask the Lord to show you what to pray for. He'll bring things to your mind and your heart. There's someone that's been on your mind all week long and you can't get them out of your head and you don't know why. Maybe the Holy Ghost wants you to pray for them. Maybe your children need someone to pray for them. There may be something that's happening at school already, situations that you don't know about and you need to come pray. Grandchildren, friends and family that are depending on you to pray. So Trinity... Let's get in the position. Let's take our hearts before the Lord and let us pray.